0: I'm Dr. Ann Katz. Welcome to Sexually Speaking, a podcast about all things related to sexuality with zero sensationalism, but lots of information. You can learn more about me, my books, and other writing on my website, drannkatz.com. This week, my guest is Dr. Don Dizon, a colleague of mine from the U.S. who has a CV longer than I am tall. In short, Dr. Dizon is an oncologist who treats women with breast and gynecologic cancers, He's the Director of the Breast and Pelvic Malignancies Program at Lifespan Cancer Institute. He's the Head of Community Outreach and Engagement at the Cancer Center at Brown University and Director of Medical Oncology at Rhode Island Hospital. That's a big deal. He's a fellow of the American College of Physicians and the American Society of Clinical Oncology. He's all over Instagram, Twitter, and his TikTok is the best. So if you're interested, Find him at Dr. Don S. Dizon. He's also a great communicator and educator and a huge advocate for addressing sexual problems in cancer care. So today, I don't want to talk specifically about cancer. I really want to focus on communication. So Don, why do some people find it so difficult to talk to their physician or other healthcare provider about sexuality?
1: Well, you know, first of all, thank you for having me, and I am such a fan of yours, Dr. Katz. Um, To answer that question most directly, it's because many of us in this society, and I'm talking U.S., Europe, and Asia, quite frankly, we are not supposed to talk about sex. It's something very private. It's very quiet. You're almost taught in many places that it stays in the bedroom. And if you talk about it outside of that, you're going to embarrass yourself and everybody else. So I think for a large parts of society, it's better to suffer silently than it is to bring it out into the open and if you do talk about it it's very hush hush very quiet with only the people you trust and really in a place where your clinician whether it be an oncologist or a primary care doc or a therapist is seeing you in one light I still think patients want to want to be good they want to be good people you know and they want this vision of that their doctors have of them to be maintained and somehow bringing up sexual issues may sully that.
0: Hmm, That's so interesting. So how did you get into this? You know, you're you're a medical oncologist. And yes, the majority of your patients are women, and they're dealing with a life-threatening, life-altering disease. So what made you Start asking about this or talking about it.
1: Well, you know, I was very lucky. I trained in New York City at Sloan Kettering, and I was a part of the disease management team that did gynecologic cancers, so ovary, fallopian tube, uterus, cervix cancers for the most part. We shared the floor with the Department of Gynecology. And that's where the sexual health program at Sloan-Kettering, at least for women, lived. It was in the Department of Gynecology. And one of our colleagues, Michael Critchman, who was there at the same time as I, He used to come over and curbside me about issues and I got to know him and his work and it was eye-opening to see that actually there was someone at Sloan Kettering whose job it was to was to explore sexual health and answer sexual health issues and, you know, it came to the point where we shared a case of a woman who developed a very severe blistering rash in her vulva while on chemotherapy. And it was the only case of what's called palmar plantar erythrodysesthesia. And you usually see it on the palms and the feet of people getting a drug called liposomal doxorubicin. And this poor person had it on her vulva. And we documented it and treatment for it. And that was eye-opening for me as a medical oncologist to be just very aware that the side effects of chemotherapy, side effects of cancer treatment has impacts on people's pelvic organs, breasts, and that this has an impact on who they are as sexual human beings. Yeah, it was an experience that I don't think I would have had otherwise in fellowship, quite frankly.
0: Yeah, so, you know, it takes one, right? And I know you have mentored others and I certainly have mentored others and, and sometimes it's that. So medical school... What did you learn about human sexuality in medical school?
1: <laughs> porn. Porn? We watched porn. What? Yeah, yeah. So it was literally snippets of porn of men having sex with men, women having sex with women. People in wheelchairs having sex, older people having sex. And the whole point was that sex is not always pretty and sex is all not what you think it is. And as a doctor, you need to see everybody as a sexual human being. But did they tell us how to take a sex history? No. They told us how to do a sexual history. Uh, you know, how many partners have you had? Do you sleep with men, women, or both? When were you, when did you start being sexually active? Those questions for sure. But did they, add, did they teach us to ask, do you, what do you find pleasurable? And are you comfortable with your erections? Does it hurt when you have intercourse? Does it change with position? Those, no, nobody taught you that.
0: Yeah, you know that—that's fascinating. You know, I, you know, as a nurse, I know in nursery school, not not in nursery school,
1: nursery school,
0: <laughs> in nursing school, you maybe get a little bit of it as part of a sort of intro to human growth and development. If you do that as an undergrad, um, maybe depending on the comfort of the professor you may get something about sexual changes associated with cardiac disease or cancer perhaps. Um, and then, you know, you, you go into clinical practice and you don't have the tools to ask. So you don't ask.
1: Correct. 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 And people or people assume you've asked the questions if you've taken an obstetric history.
0: Right. But having babies, I mean, it has a little bit to do with sex, but it really, you know, once again, it's not a pleasure based um, curriculum or or area. It's.
1: Nope. Exactly. Exactly. It's like you just because you cover fertility doesn't mean you've covered sex out all but that's been sort of the challenge right sort of when I speak with my colleagues about you know you need to at least begin a conversation it's like well I ask them about pregnancies I ask them about how many kids they've had I'm like that's not sex you're not asking about sex it's like what does it matter to me how many people they slept with it's like again (laughs) you know what we're getting at is sexual function sexual health sexual you know intimacy and sensuality these are the things that that people care about right now this is what it is but we're not taught that no
0: you know if you're not taught you're not going to teach others and you're certainly not going to do it yourself and you know and i think also those sort of questions about you know how many children you've had is is really exclusionary right because Mm
1: -hmm, mm -hmm.
0: there are people who, who don't have children and there are people who can't have children and yeah it's uh i sometimes sort of almost feel like sort of a lone voice in the wilderness. And and I'm constantly asked, you know, how come you're comfortable with this? Because it's just like any other body function. Correct. And one, yeah, and you know, one of the things that sort of, that really irks me in terms of oncology, in terms of cancer care, is that we talk about all the icky things, right? We talk about mouth sores, we talk about constipation, we talk about diarrhea, we talk about hair loss, and somehow this, gets left out or... Completely. We ask the question and the patient is so shocked that someone has asked the question that they don't know what to say in the moment. And then we never ask it again.
1: I think one of the things that I try to teach people is that it's not a checkbox that you have in your form. It's like, have you had palpitations? Does it hurt when you have sex? I mean, that's not natural. (laughs) You know, asking is like, sometimes... People have these issues when they see me for the first time. I'm wondering if this is what you want to explore. You know, lots of people will say no when they're first diagnosed with cancer because it's just not where their mind's at. But at least just like you said, Dr. Katz, it's opening the door and they can walk through when they're ready. That's what people want to see. So you ask me, you know, why don't people talk about it? It's because the door has never been opened. And unless you open that door, people are never going to presume their doctor wants to hear about it. They're just not going to presume that.
0: So let's delve a little further into, you know, what are the barriers for our patients or people, right? You know, in my head, people are patients when they're in our office in our hospital, in our cancer center, but then they go outside and they're people. So what are the issues do you think that really hold back people from raising the topic with us? Because they're often bothered by it. And you know, outside of oncology, there are people who are trying to get pregnant, but they have huge problems with sexual pain because of trauma in the past, perhaps, or an injury or um, lack of experience.
1: Yeah. Well, I think one of them is when someone is treated for cancer, there's just so many differing priorities that they need to cover with their doc. And their doc has 15 minutes, one five, that's it. And you know, it's like, they rush in and we're looking at our watches or we're at the computer. It's like, anything else? Great. Go off and be good. And you leave. So they're trying to maximize that time. So I always think internally, people are saying, what do I need to tell my doctor today? I need to tell them I'm in more pain. I have nausea. My breathing is better. My hair is coming back. And when's my next CAT scan? These are the priorities. And I think, again, it's sort of, did your doctor sort of prioritize health? Did he stop and look at you and say, how else are things going? Just look at you and really ask you that question. Because if they don't, most people are gonna just go through that priority list. And if they get to sex, then they'll ask about it. But really quite frequently they don't. When I did primary care, it was interesting. It was a time when we just we weren't limited to like 15 minutes. You could actually spend some time with people. But they would come in with Issues. It's like, my breathing's bad. My teeth hurt. My eyes don't work. Da, da, da. And I used to go, Ugh. if I could fix one thing, <laughs> what's that one thing? <laughs> I have a sense they're not looking at the one thing, but they're looking at these are the things I must tell you. And then they walk out as like, well, I didn't get to talk about it. I'm going to go to my nurse, my therapist, my social worker, the one that I trust, and I'm just going to mention that this is an issue. That's still how I get my consults. It's not coming from my colleagues.
0: Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I actually get a fair number of consults from my oncologist colleagues. Um, you know, sometimes including telling me what not to do or what not to talk about, which I always find somewhat amusing because you you can imagine how well that goes down with me. <laughs> um you know, I also find that patients, people don't know where to start. They're embarrassed about whether they know the right words. You know, I'm constantly surprised by how little people know about their own body parts. You know, I've had men not know where their prostate is. Well, it's now gone, and you know, it's sitting in a freezer somewhere. But um, you know, they, they they don't know, and and that to me is is always you know interesting. From really a sex obsessed society, let's face it, right? Sex cells pretty much everything. And yet, you know, sex education is so bad. You know, I think particularly in the US where states have enormous power to dictate what gets taught and parents think kids are getting it at school and kids are getting it from porn.
1: Yeah, and the, you know, and if you then extend it, so these, all these messages in our society of what's a what's a woman supposed to look like and what's what is virility look like if you're a man? This is what's virile, right? And then- you couple that with everything that we do in cancer care, and it's just it gets so complicated. Plus, I think where we sometimes will will fail our patients really is when we don't even mention the sexual side effects of the treatments. I think people who treat prostate cancer are better at that. I mean, you cannot ignore that when I put you on anti- <laughs> ADT or you know deprivation te- therapy you're not gonna feel good sexually, that it's gonna have an impact on your ability to get aroused, erect, and stimulated, you know? You have to mention it. But un- until, what, three or four years ago, Dr. Katz, with endocrine therapy, myalgias, skin skin is gonna get really dry, um, your hair might get very coarse, nothing about what it will do to your sex life, nothing about the pain, nothing about the atrophy, and it was just ignored, and so I think what ended up happening is that people started getting these symptoms, and they were embarrassed by it because this wasn't told. Like, no one told me this was going to happen, so I must be the only one.
0: That happens all the time. In fact, I had a conversation with a patient recently who said, "Why did nobody tell me? I thought I was broken," and. You know, one of the things that I say when I encourage my nursing colleagues and social work college, and sometimes oncology colleagues, when I give talks is just broach the subject. And what most people want is validation and normalization, that they're not the only one, that you've heard this before. You know, And I think we were just talking about endocrine therapy. So for women with hormone dependent cancers, we put them on drugs to reduce their risk of a breast cancer recurrence. And, you know, I mean, I don't think any woman who's been through breast cancer ever, ever, ever wants to go through that again with a recurrence. So we do a really good job at selling that, but we do not talk about the sexual side effects of those drugs. And the enormous, enormous problem with vaginal and vulvar dryness, which often makes sex absolutely impossible or any kind of sexual touch uh, impossible. You know, some of them, lower libido to the point that, you know, that women don't ever, ever think uh, about it and are absolutely avoidant.
1: Right. And then how they describe it to us, right? They, it's not, it's very tender or sore down there or it chafes. It's, I have no desire, you know, because there's something wrong with me. I have no desire for intercourse and you need to peel back those layers, but unless you know to peel back those layers you might just say "Oh, that you can take for to help with your desire yeah and it's we don't people don't know the language as much as they don't know their anatomy they don't know what to describe and it's our role to say well let's let's think of when was you know what was it like before you had your breast cancer when did it change you know there are things that you can do to reconstruct things that happen but you're absolutely right it's about validation
0: i think also you know we have if you're prescribing a drug, if you're prescribing chemotherapy or a targeted therapy, you have an absolute responsibility to talk about the side effects. But these side effects are always left out. I will often see patients, particularly those with hematologic cancers, and they come in and they're on these drugs that I cannot pronounce. I don't know what these drug companies do. They put like Scrabble letters in a bag, shake them up, and then you know come up with with a name. And they're always X's and Z's in them. Anyway, you know, and they say. To I mean, this is what I'm going through first of all I believe them I don't question but I will often then go you know online to look to see if there is any mention of sexual side effects and generally they aren't because in the clinical trials the assumption is you're too sick for sex so they don't ask those questions so I you know have to put the pieces together there's skin side effects oh okay you know there's endocrine uh disruption oh okay you know, and then you, you sort of join all the dots. And then, you know, yeah, no wonder you're, you're experiencing this. It's the, you know, it's the medication that's doing it. And yeah, potentially it's saving your life, but at a cost of quality of life.
1: Yeah, it's completely agree. And what I don't think our community understands is how disruptive it can be. You know, people can go on with their lives, even if their sex life is suffering and be very functional. But they're not whole, you know? And I think all we do is we try to make people whole either by curing them of cancer or at least getting it to the point where they're cancer and they can live together if we can't cure it. And if you don't address that one piece, they're just not whole.
0: Yeah, true. And you know, it also then often will spill out into the couple relationship or if it's a young adult who is not yet partnered you know that assumption that no one's going to want me no one's going to want to be with me because it hurts i can't you know what whatever the, the issue is and and you know i think we it, it's an area that is really really neglected but you know there's not a you or i in so many cancer centers and Uh, you know, I'm often asked, you know, how can we get one of you? Well, I'm not sure you want one of, you know, everybody wants one of me. Um,
1: (laughs) Until you get there, right? They're like, oh boy. (laughs) Right.
0: But it's important. So let me ask you a question. How do you Talk to your colleagues, how do you encourage your colleagues who are reluctant, don't think it's important, think it's some you know thinks that it's somebody else's responsibility?
1: Well, so I've started three sexual health programs at this point, and what's interesting and I've helped people start programs in their own divisions, and what happens consistently is once you establish the resource people are more willing to ask the question because it's their job. They see it as their job to get people to a a resource that is now available. But before then, unless you offer the, if you find that then you do this without the then part, then it becomes very difficult because the concerns that everybody will express is what, what am I going to hear You know, it's like, I'm not prepared to hear all about someone's sex life. And like, like they, you know, there's this concern that a porn movie is going to come spilling out of everybody's mouths and they're going to be as graphic and detailed, you know. I personally find nothing phases me when they want to talk about sex. It's totally fine. But not everybody's like that. Everyone has their own comfort level, their own schema. And, you know, I think just understanding that the conversation only goes as far as you're willing to take it. But if you put a say, okay, well, I'm not comfortable going further than this or I don't know what to do after this point. Let me get you to someone who can help that's the key. And I think that's where you and I folks like us become really valuable because we allow people to ask the question comfortably because they know they can pass off that concern to someone else.
0: Yeah, that's so true. You know, when I first 20, no, 17, 18 years ago, started working at the cancer center where I work, um, you know, and was publicized. I did grand rounds to, you know, tell people I was there. It was like PR. And um, one of the radiation oncologists stopped me in the hallway. And he said, you know, before you came here, if if I asked the question, I would be stuck in that room for 40 minutes. A mistake, right? Because generally, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't take that long to ask the question. And then he said, but now that you're here, I will ask the question because I know where to send them. And that's an issue of resources, right? And, you know, yeah, it's
1: it is 100%.
0: It's, 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 I think, impossible or just really difficult to ask a question and then not be able to help. We don't like that.
1: Well, it just defeats the purpose of it, right? It's like, why am I going to run this lab test if there's no treatment for it? You know, it's like, why am I going to ask this question if I don't know what to do? But now it's like, you know, so so that is the lesson I think that I would take away is that, the, you know, if you want to start addressing the issue – Centers need to devote some resources to this. It doesn't have to be its own, like, you know, five-story building on a cancer center, but whoever's going to be that advocate, they need to be supported to do this work so that they can be the resource for the center.
0: Right. You know, and then there are those of us who kind of do this sort of, you know, the saying is off the side of our desk, right? We have these other responsibilities, but it's an add-on. And-
1: but it's an add-on, Correct
0: but often becomes the most fulfilling and gratifying.
1: It is. And I actually was just giving grand rounds earlier today at the, at university of Chicago. And that's what I said. It was like, it is such a pleasure to sit with someone with cancer and not talk about the next steps to treat their cancer. Rather we sit and we try to make one part of their life better. You know, and it it is one key to resiliency in oncology, really, is to pick up an area in, you know, post-treatment care. If you want to call it survivorship, you can call it that. but And to say, I want to help people live through cancer. And the area I want to help is this. And for me and you, it was sexual health. And I 100% agree. It is so gratifying to be able to validate and also to help provide relief um, for something that's so personal and human.
0: I can think of no better place to stop. So thank you, Dr. Dizon. You know, I am a fan. Um,
1: Thank you. (laughs) Oh, me too. Are you kidding me? It was like we have to collaborate till we both retire.
0: (laughs) Oh, yeah. For some of us, are going to come sooner than others.
1: <laughs> oh, no. You're like the energizer bunny. Once I, once I lift the restrictions, you and I are going to be on the road again. <laughs> drinking. Or at least Vegas next year. We got to try for Vegas next year.
0: We're going to be on the road again. Yeah. Uh, drinking and, and having a really good time. So that's on my list to do. So that's it for Sexually Speaking this time. There'll be more from me with another guest in the coming weeks. If there's a topic you're particularly interested in hearing about, or if you want to contact me about private counseling, please email me at counseling at drannkatz.com. That's counseling with two L's.